The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Uh, we're in the book of Exodus, and we're working through this series. It's going to be in, we're going to be in it for a while, so just put your seatbelt on and relax. Enjoy the ride. And we're calling it Exodus, Our Journey, fittingly enough. And the reason that we're, go- we're going through a lot of reasons, uh, one is the scripture. It's really important to study it and to preach from it and look at it and to learn from it and to see God in it. But the, the one of the reasons that we're looking at it is because th- there's some, like, some ideas in scripture that I mentioned a couple weeks ago that there's not like a glossary in the back where it tells us like, hey, sin equals exactly this. Like you can do a word study, you can see what sin means, but you have to really kind of see a big picture of what it looks like. And there's a big theme in scripture and obviously in Christianity of salvation, of deliverance. And the best picture that we have for what salvation is and what it looks like is from the book of Exodus. Because this is a story of salvation. It's a story of God's people who, first of all, they started out becoming God's people by, uh, think about it at the time. People all over the face of the, of the earth, and they, most of them are what we call, uh, well, we won't get into terms, they worship multiple gods, almost everybody. And God appears, the one and only true God appears to Abram, and he says, I am the God, and there is no other. And you will worship me and serve me only, and if you do that, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. And then, by the way, Abraham is an old guy at this time. His name gets changed into Abraham. Abraham is an old guy at this time. He has no kids, which in, in this era would be just a shame. For a man and woman not to have any kids, they would be considered probably cursed by the gods. And he appears to Abraham and says, I will be your God, and you will be my my special chosen one, and I will make of you a great nation. And this will be my covenant with you, not just you, but all of your children after you. I'll make you a great nation, and you'll be a, a blessing to the entire nation. You'll be my special people. And Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac, and he has a son. His name is Jacob, also known as Israel. He has 12 kids, or 12 sons. And out of those 12 sons, there's one special one I mentioned last week. He was, his name was Joseph. He was like, he, like, Israel really doted on Joseph. He gave him a coat of many colors, and he was like his special one. And his brothers all were jealous about him because he had the Air Jordans. His, God, his father gave him the Air Jordans and didn't give any of the brothers the Air Jordans. And they, they got so angry, they, sold him into, they threw him in a pit, told their dad he was dead, and then sold him into slavery. And he ends up in Egypt. Now, he ends up in Egypt, and he is a slave. And then he, like, gets a bum rap, his, uh, and he ends up in jail. And then he goes from jail because he interprets the Pharaoh, who is the king's dream, and he ends up second in command of all of Egypt. And meanwhile, we'll see what God's been working in the background. He becomes a second in control of all of Egypt, and there's a famine all over the world. And Egypt is the one country where there's food. And Joseph is the one who helped make sure they had a stockpile of food. And so Joseph, through a whole kind of crazy set of events, he brings his family, there's 70 of them all, into Egypt, and they live in Egypt. Now think about this. If you're one of those 70 people, and you move to Egypt, it's the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. You're from a clan of about of 70 people who are, you're all sheep herders, you're all shepherds, uh, which, by the way, the Egyptians thought were very just 
nasty, disgusting, dirty animals. And so they didn't want to have anything to do with sheep. So you kind of had the run of the market when it comes to shepherding. And so they come into Egypt. You're, you're all related to the guy who's second in command, who saved Egypt from the famine. And you have the run of the market when it comes to shepherding. No, nobody wants to compete with you. And God blesses them and they multiply. And there's more and more Israelites and they become more and more powerful. There are, they're sort of like a highly looked upon in Egypt, even though they're the shepherds. They, they kind of, they grow in number, they grow in money as well. But then what happens is a Pharaoh comes along who doesn't remember Joseph and how he saved them from certain death as a country. And he gets jealous of the Hebrews because they're getting so many, has so much money and power. And so he starts to push them down and finally they end up not only just putting them into servitude, but they make them into slaves. And they're, all of a sudden the table has turned on them and from being the people that would be celebrated to have helped save Egypt, they're the slaves that helped build the buildings and the cities in Egypt. They're forgotten. The God who they thought was their God, who they thought they were his special people, the one that he said, you will be my chosen special people. Now things are dark and dreary and they're alone. But then last week we saw how God in the middle of this darkness, in the middle of this sense that God has forgotten us, that he's left us alone, that God worked providentially in the background. And though Pharaoh ends up coming up with this plan, he's kind of trying to tamp down the population of the Israelites. And he commands all the baby boys to be killed, to be thrown into the Nile. But Moses, his mother, she puts him in a basket and throws him in the Nile and he's safe in the basket and then Pharaoh's daughter discovers him and she adopts him for her own son. So Moses now is a Hebrew and he's raised by his mom for the first three years so the Pharaoh's daughter lets her be his nursemaid for the first three years and then he becomes a prince in Egypt. He has all the power, all the wealth, all the advantages of being a prince in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at his disposal. He's educated. He's, he's put in a, a place of prominence and position. Now, fast forward, he's trained. He's a prince of Egypt. He's been one for now for 40 years. And somewhere along the way, he discovers, and whether he knew it the whole time or he discovers it later on in life, we don't know. But somewhere along the way, he discovers that he is a Hebrew himself, even though he's a prince of Egypt. And he decides wow, I'm going to figure out more about them. And so one day he says that he was watching what was going on because remember they're slaves and he's the prince. You've got to feel this, kind of, this kind, of, kind of identity crisis that would be going on in him at the, all at one time. He's wondering like, hey, I'm a prince, but yet I'm also one of them. Like, who do I identify? Am I, am I glad I'm not one of them and are in slavery? Or, am I, or do I feel bad for them? Do I try to... What, what do I do here? If I try to make a move to protect them, am I going to be exposed to be a Hebrew? And then I'm going to, what, what's, what will happen? But the more he watches them, the more he identifies with them. They're his people. And one day he's out watching them. And he sees one of the Egyptian taskmasters ruthlessly beating one of his brothers. Now he considers them his brothers. And Moses becomes enraged. He is a prince after all. And he intervenes and he beats the man to death. And then he hides him 
on the sand. He buries him and hides him under the sand. Now he doesn't tell anybody. Because I think what has happened not by now in, this, in Moses' mind, he understands that, and we touched on this last week, that if, if you're the people of Israel and you've been under bondage now for almost 400 years, they've been slaves in Egypt. And you, you've been pushed down and pressed down for so long, you have no advantages. How are you, you, how are you ever going to free yourself from slavery? There's no hope. You need a deliverer. And I think Moses now sees, like, I can be the deliverer for my people. I'm one of them, but I have this position, and I have this prominence, and I have this education, I have this ability, and maybe I can be a spokesman for them. Maybe I can lead them and help them and guide them out. And so he kills this man. I think he thought, like, this is going to be the first step. Like, they're going to see I'm for them, and I'm going to help them, like, lead an uprising or get them out of here or lead a political change, whatever it's going to look like to free his people. The next day he's walking around and he sees two of the Hebrews fighting each other. And he runs up and he breaks up that fight and he says, hey man, why are you fighting against each other, man? We're brothers. And they say, hey, who are you to tell us what to do? You're going to kill me too like you killed that guy yesterday? And all of a sudden Moses realizes It wasn't as secret as I thought. And it's known. And these people aren't going to follow me. And all of a sudden, I've now alienated myself from my family in Egypt because I've killed one of their own for the sake of the Hebrews. And the Hebrews don't want me either. And then it says that whenever it got to Pharaoh, that Pharaoh tried to kill him. And he had to leave this prince of Egypt. He was exiled from Egypt himself. You see, God was going to bring salvation to the people of Israel, but the people weren't ready. They weren't ready for salvation. This was their chance. One of their own is a prince. And he's moved for them. He's, he's on their side. Obviously, they could have joined him and said, yes, we won't know more of this. We're going we're gonna to get out of here. But something happens for us like it, does for the, like it did for the Israelites. I mentioned last week, Egypt was at once their salvation. The people were going to die on their own in the wilderness, and Joseph had to save them. And now they're slaves in Egypt, but at least they're slaves in the most powerful country on the face of the earth. They have some bit of comfort. They have some sort of comfortability. They know who they are. They know what's going on. They know where their next meal is going to come from. Even if life is terrible and hard and difficult for them, See, what happens for us is salvation. Often, we often become enslaved to what we think saved us. Prosperity leads to servitude. Maybe you've discovered that in your own life. Something that you're like really good at, or life is going well. Maybe you're really good at your career, or you're really good at academics. Maybe you're really athletic, or you're great looking. Or you're popular. And the thing that sort of gives you, gives you your strokes, that makes you feel good about yourself, that makes you feel like you have value and identity, like, or gives you relief, like all of a sudden, like it, it, becomes, it changes from just being fun and games to like you put a lot of effort into it. If you're popular, like all of a sudden it becomes a game, like I have to stay popular. 
I have to stay likable. If you're good in your career and like you start to have some success, like yesterday's successes aren't enough for today and you have to chase today's successes. You have to build up that resume. Or if it's money that's in your bank account or your looks. How many of you have seen people who are like incredibly good looking, but you can tell like they spend a lot of time and attention on it? Whatever it is that saves us, whatever it is that we're prosperous and that we're good at, we will end up serving until that servitude ends up becoming slavery. And all of a sudden, that thing that we were servants under, we're now slaves to. It owns us. And no matter how much we want to change, no matter how much we want to be different, we can't seem to bring ourselves to become different. Maybe you, like, have been in a lot of relationships. You're really good at the first 90 days. And then after that, like, every single one kind of falls apart. And you say, like, like at, at first, like, having lots of different honeys or meeting lots of different guys or being real popular, like, with the opposite sex is, like, it's, it's really, it's, it really strokes you. It gets you excited. It, it feeds you. Like, it, you feel good about yourself. But then all of a sudden, one day you wake up and you're, you're so incredibly lonely because you can't establish any sort of relationship that lasts. Nobody, you know a lot of people, but nobody really knows you. You become a slave to it. But you can't seem to stop yourself. Prosperity becomes servitude, just as it did for the, for the Israelites in Egypt. They were prosperous people, but then they, become, they ended up becoming servants and then became slaves. And we get so used to our, our filth that that becomes what's comfortable. I heard about a guy yesterday, and he's, he's, he's getting older. He's got a, a dog, and he's not really caring for the dog like he used to care. He lives in like a, like a little condo apartment place. And he, he's getting older. He's not caring for the dog and caring for himself very well, and the place has just really gone, like it's, it's, it's terrible. But he didn't realize how bad it was until somebody came and visited him. And they smelled the smell and they saw the spots on the carpet. And all of a sudden he realized, I'm living in filth and squalor. But he didn't realize it before. And that happens for you and me just like it does for the Israelites. From the outside, we look at them and we see them in slavery. It's like, what, you want to get out of that? But you and I do the same thing. And here's the secret behind it all. That God was working in the background to get to the Israelites to a point where they wouldn't be comfortable in their own filth and squalor anymore. Look at what it says in verse 23 of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. See, there's a difference between groaning and crying out for help. There's a difference between getting up in the morning and groaning and complaining and saying your life isn't maybe exactly what you want it to be. And when you get to the end of yourself and you actually cry out for help, 
or for rescue. And maybe you're in that kind of moment right now. Or you've been in those kind of that place. And that's a dark place. That's a difficult place to be in. But it's a beautiful place to be in. When God finally gets you to a place where there is no other help, you're tired of your own filth and squalor. You're tired. You're not just tired of being a servant or being enslaved, but you see like I am enslaved and there is no other help and I need somebody to come and deliver me and help me and pull me out of my own filth and squalor. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm, I'm done. I have no other, I don't have a plan B anymore. I don't have a, a different deal I can do. I don't have anybody else I can turn to. I need somebody else to come who is more powerful and more able and more capable than I am who can save me. That is a dark place to be in, but it's a blessed place to be in. It's what we call a dark providence. It's when God engineers your circumstances to the point where you realize I have no other help and no other hope and your groanings turn into cries for rescue. When your groanings turn into cries for help. Because you see, as it says here, they're groaning, they groan because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And this is one of the most beautiful verses, I think. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered. God heard their groaning. He heard their cries. you're here this morning and you found yourself maybe you're not a believer in Jesus Christ or but you feel like I'm at the end of my rope God has orchestrated your life to this point to get you just to the point where you would cry out for help where you would see I have no other help no other place no other source of salvation except this morning it's a blessed place to be in even if it's a hard difficult dark place to be in. And maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer and you find yourself in that kind of place. Here's the, it may not be the rosiest picture, but here's the truth. God will continually lead you to that place. Because when we see in the New Testament when it talks about the salvation for a believer, it doesn't just talk about it past tense like you were saved. It says that we are being saved and that we will be saved in the future. Our salvation is a continual thing. Think about this. If you're a believer and you're thinking like, I can't wait till heaven so I, I, I won't be sick anymore and I won't sin anymore. And sometimes, that's great, but sometimes what we're saying is, I, I can't wait till we get to heaven so I won't have to be dependent upon God for every moment anymore. You will be being saved in heaven on the new heaven and the new earth by the blood of Jesus Christ and his continual upholding of you. You will never not need him. He will always be your salvation. 
And if you're a believer, he will be continually leading you to a place where all the things that we keep reaching for, all the false salvations, all the comfort and security, which is what the Israelites are going to fight Moses over the next 40 years as he leads them out of Egypt and into the promised land. They're going to fight him. At one point, they're going to say, hey, were there not enough graves in Egypt? You could have just left us there to die because at least we had good food there. At least in my squalor, I knew, where, I knew where the refrigerator was. And God will continually lead us to a place where the end of ourselves, where we see there is no other hope. And every single false salvation you and I reach for is simply that. It is false. God hears our groans. He responds to our cries. God hears our groans. He responds to our cries. I wonder if you and I this morning have forgotten how desperate we are for his continual upholding of us. Well, then it doesn't just say that God hears. It says that God knows. Look at this in verse 25. God saw the people of Israel. This is beautiful. And God knew. Think of these words that he uses. He heard their groaning. He saw them. And God knew. That means that it, God didn't just see it and hear it. But that wording there, that, that word know, that he knew, it is it's the same, it's used lots of different ways in the Old Testament, but one of the ways it's used is when it says that, if you read like in, the, uh, the, in Genesis, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve. It means that they knew each other intimately. It means that God, not only did he see what they were going through, not only did he hear their cries to him, but he knew, he understood, he got it. He didn't just hear from afar like he was watching a play. He doesn't watch the world unfold before him. He's not watching your life unfold before him like he's watching a play or like you and I might watch a show or binge watch something on Netflix. He is intimately aware and knowledgeable of every single pain and every single frustration that you and I are going through. He knows it. He understands. He graciously and gently loves his people. He hears our cries. He knows knows our pain. He wants the best for us. He has moved towards us when we cry out to him. If we cry. If we start, stop reaching for faults, salvations, and we cry out to him as the only one for us whenever he engineers our life in such a way that we get to the end of our rope, it may be in your life, it might be a big crisis, it might be a little crisis, to somebody else it might be a big deal or a small deal, but for you, it is what he uses to get you to the end of your rope over and over again. Because you see, God wasn't, it's interesting that God wasn't just preparing a people, to be, his people to be delivered, to be saved, because they weren't ready, but he was also preparing the deliverer. Think about it. Moses 
been divinely orchestrated so that he, he's a prince of Egypt, yet it's one of the Hebrews. Yet he tries to lead this, this revolt and nothing happens and he has to flee and he has to leave Egypt and he's now an exile out in the wilderness. Moses saw the plight of his people. He was moved. He saw that he was in the unique position. He was the one who could deliver his people, but he wasn't ready. He had to decide, I'm going to leave the pleasures of being the prince of Egypt, a prince of Egypt, and identify with the Hebrews, and then was pushed out into exile away from them. He had to reject the position of honor he, because he couldn't deliver his people as a prince. He had to be one of them. Moses had to understand. He had to identify with his people and become one of them to leave and reject privilege and honor to be one of them. Maybe that reminds us of somebody else. You and I needed a savior. You sitting right there, a believer or not, you need a savior. And there was one who left the pleasures, the royalty of heaven, and he became like you and me. The Bible says there's not a single thing that you and I go through that he doesn't identify with himself. Our God in heaven physically knows pain. He's experienced it. He's experienced loss as a human. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be homeless, to be helpless. He knows what it's like to have family reject him. He knows what it's like to go without. He knows and he understands intimately your weakness and my weakness, your pain and my pain. He knows it. And he was exiled. He was considered, even among men, the lowest of the low, and he was ruthlessly killed himself. God not only hears us, but God knows our pain. He knows what we have been through and what we are going through. And then lastly, God remembers. Look at that. It says, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, what does that mean that God remembered? Because I thought, like, to be God, like, you don't forget anything, right? You know everything all at one time without having to even try. Like, so how could God remember something? 
Did he intentionally, I don't understand, like did he intentionally forget, like what's going on? Was talking about why did God move at this point in history to save the people? Because they were his people the whole time, right? You can, guys can come back with me and nod your head, yes? But yes, he was their people the whole time, 400 years. They've been in Egypt. A large portion of that time, they've been slaves. Why now? Why at this one moment? Because God brought them to an end in themselves. They saw there was no other salvation. They said, this isn't working anymore. We can't do this. We got to get out of here. God, we need to, we're at the end of our road. We don't have any other source of hope of salvation from anybody else except from you. You got to come and help us. You got to come save us. Moses is the answer. You're the answer. And whenever they cried out to him, what caused him to move on their behalf wasn't he just, no, it wasn't just that he knew and he understood, but he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, his blood agreement that he had made with Abraham. And that's what caused him to move. If God brings you to the end of yourself, if you see and you feel your incredible need for him, if you're at the end of your rope, if sin overwhelms you, if you are undone, what is the thing that will cause him to listen to you and to help you? Because the thing that they could cry out to is say, hey, God, you remembered the covenant you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If we're going to be a, a great nation, if we're going to have a country, if we're going to be a blessing to the nations around us, then well, you got to get us there because we don't have a route there outside of that. And he remembered that. He, they, recall, they called out to him and he remembered his covenant with them. He moved, that means he moved on behalf of them, on behalf of the covenant that he had made with them. What's going to cause him to move on your behalf? What's going to cause him to come to your aid? Because here's the truth. There's nothing in you and me that's deserving of God's help and aid. On our own, we are sinful human beings. We are by nature and by choice traitors to God. Left to our own, we have no desire for him. We don't want no part of, we want no part of his commandments. We don't want to follow him, listen to him, obey him, worship him, give him the due that he is due. We don't want to give him any of that by nature. So what's going to cause him to move and respond on our behalf? It's God remembering that he sent a deliverer for you and for me who then paid the, the penalty and paid for the new covenant to be cut by his own blood. When God made the covenant with Abraham, he took the he took the animals and he split them in half and, they, and Abraham walked between, the, between them and blood was shed to cut or to begin this covenant between God and man. And when God made a covenant, the new covenant, he shed his son's blood on your behalf, on my behalf. So when you and I cry out to him at the end of our rope, we're not just throwing pennies in the fountain hoping that he will hear us. We're not setting a, a plate of food before some idol, hoping that they'll be pleased with this meal. We're crying out to God and we're saying, you sent your son to pay for my sins and I put my faith and trust wholly upon that. Save me, Lord. 
for your glory and by your name. Save us. Remember the blood that you shed on, our, on my behalf, on our behalf. So as we see what God is doing in this story of salvation, we see that God is preparing a people to be saved by getting them to a place where they are the end in themselves and they see no other help and hope. When you and I, if you're a non-believer, if you're understanding how do I become saved, how would I go down this route? You see that God is bringing you to an end of yourself and you see I'm overwhelmed by my sin, I'm overwhelmed by my hopelessness and I cry out to God based upon his covenant of his son on my behalf. If you're a believer, when God continually brings you to an end of yourself, you cry out for him for help. Not just groaning, not just complaining, but crying out to him for help and rescue. And remembering, as you remember, he remembers his covenant on your behalf. And that's why every week when we gather, we celebrate communion. Because as I remember what he has done on my behalf, and I partake of communion, he remembers And I cry out to him, and he responds. Let's pray. All this morning, as we gather, as we sit here, I pray that we would be reminded. of our helplessness and our hopelessness. Some of us for the first time, that you have been engineering and you are engineering our lives in such a way that we would see our utter and complete need for you, that there is no other salvation, that all the other things that we try to reach for, we ultimately become servants to and become enslaved to. Father, I pray that we would be brought to an end of ourselves, each individually this morning, we would cry out to you for help and for rescue. For those that aren't believers in Christ, they would cry out for help and rescue only from you. And for those of us who are, that you would stir in our hearts afresh and anew. Our emptiness apart from you, and we would be ashamed of the things that we've reached for for salvation outside of you. And we'd understand that I'm, that wasn't just saved in the past at some point where I checked a card or I prayed a prayer or I walked an aisle, but I am being saved now by the blood of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And I would look, we would look to you and cry out to you alone as our salvation. And that we would have confidence that you hear us, that you know you understand and that you remember. You remember your sufficiency on our behalf. You remember your covenant that you've made to cover us and to care for us and to keep us and that we would remember. As your 
son's name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.